Tim, I'm I'm back. I, I I don't know what happened. I think when I came back from the future to do the Suicide Squad review, I think I jumped and created an alternate timeline. It was so dark and weird. I wasn't on the show anymore, and you and Brent weren't excited about the musical crossover with Flash and Supergirl, and he didn't know the history of Miss Martian. It was just wrong. I had to use a speed force and come back. Let's just say I put him in a hole and threw away the hole. Welcome to the Suicide Squad cast. This is the DC Universe podcast where we discuss the DC Extended Universe movies and TV shows. Yeah, we are all big fans of what DC Comics is doing on the big and the small screens, so we want to make sure that we talk about all of it. So thanks for joining us today. Let's get started. My name is Scott. And I'm Tim, and we are the Suicide Squad cast. And Scott, happy to have you back, man. It just felt a little weird to not have you there. You know, been doing all these, ep- what are we at, episode 61 here? Yeah, we are. Probably done about 57 of those episodes with you, so it's it was, it was awful weird not having you there last week. I wish I could have been there, but I was exhausted and I literally passed out and I was not waking up. It was just, <laughs> it was just not going to happen. No, that's fine. Well, we had, you know, we had Brent Clark there and uh, he was able to kind of fill your small. <laughs> my, my small? Really? <laughs> he was able to fill your shoes. So uh, very happy that we had him there. But man, what's been going on with you this week? <laughs> this was my first full week back at work. I started last week, which is why I was so exhausted because anybody knows what it's like being a teacher. Those first two days back or draining. But this is my first week back. My oldest my oldest child started preschool. So it's it's been a little it's been a little weird around this household <laughs> lately. Yeah. But um it's been nice to actually like get back into the news and you know know what's kind of going on. It's been weird kind of experiencing the news through other podcasts and listening to my own show that I'm not on and getting the news going, Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> so that's what's nice going to on. know this. <laughs> yeah. Well very good, very good. Yeah, my week's been kind of draining as well. Actually it's been the last two weeks. So I've been under this going on about 14 days in a row battle with my son. Uh, My son is three years old and he has a really hard time sleeping through the night and he gets a separation anxiety. And so he, you know, we'll put him to bed at 8 p.m. And then from that point on, he usually sleeps about two hours and then he just starts getting up every hour (laughs) pretty much through the rest of the night. And he wants to come into our room, wants to, you know, basically he's got this strong attachment to Jamie, my wife, and it's a separation anxiety. He wants to come sleep in our bed and we're like, no, that is definitely not happening. <laughs> and so it's just been a battle. You know, I will just sit there and say, you know what? I am going to win this battle with this little kid. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to let this little three-year-old beat me. And so I will sit there out in the hallway with them, stop him from coming in our room. And I'll sit there, Grayson, you got to go back to sleep. You got to go back to your room. And then he'll just bawl and cry and fight me. And I was getting no sleep for about two weeks here, just basically an hour here, hour there throughout the night. So I was pretty exhausted, but we finally got through it. The last two nights in a row, he has slept the entire night through because I oh, just fantastic. really, really, really tried to, I tried to have a conversation with him and say, this is what's going to happen. You are going to sleep in your room. And if you don't, then you're not going to get to watch your shows in the morning. You're not going to get the chocolate milk that you love. So, <laughs> so basically just had to start taking things away and it finally started to sink in with them and knock on wood last two nights. It's been great. Oh, nice. Nice. Um, I also want to give some shout outs because I haven't listened to so many other podcasts since I wasn't on my own. I have, I've learned that there's a lot of podcasts out there that did enjoy Suicide Squad. And so I just want to give some recommendations for some positive 
reviews that I've been seeing out there. DC on Screen, City Geek, Country Geek, Agent Adapt, and Beer with Geeks just dropped their Suicide Squad review today on mm-hmm. Friday, and it was positive as well. It was kind of funny. Frank has seen it once. Tim has seen it three times. Frank scores what I would have given it my first time viewing, and then Tim scores what I give it now after, you know, seeing it twice and he's seen it three times. So, yeah. once again, we love the Beer with Geek guys, so, you know, but all those podcasts, then they have wonderful things to say about Suicide Squad, so please check out their reviews, because they're all they're all great, too. Yep, and I would throw Man of Steel answers in there as well. Yes, that was a great show he did. Yep. That was a really good one. Yeah, but yeah, anyway, we got some news. Let's kind of get back to this, and uh, let's get started on it. So, we had some box office update for Suicide Squad. Now, this comes from a variety of sources, some of them being some a couple of the trades, like Deadline and Variety. Forbes had some information as well, but some of it also came from a press release from Warner Brothers, and let's kind of go through the numbers here real quick. So, from the first Saturday and Sunday weekend to the next Saturday and Sunday, Suicide Squad dropped 55% from the prior week. Now, I know that a lot of you probably heard the 67% number, but Tim explained this to me before we started recording, and I think it's important to realize he specifically said the Saturday and Sunday drop. And Tim, how about you kind of explain, you know, why you picked just those two days? Yeah, so basically the preview was Thursday night, and then we actually had the official premiere night as being Friday. And so those are just two days that are just always hard to take a legitimate comparison to because that's where you get the most the most enthusiastic fans are going to come out that day. And if there's exceptionally high enthusiasm for a film, the fans are going to go see it those two days. And so people that may have been enthusiastic about the film, but, you know, we're going to see it within the first couple of weeks, it kind of front loads a lot of that. And so the other problem that I had with it too, when they talk about the drop, is you combine the preview nights on Thursday, which is some 4,000 screens or so that it's on. So you, you take all that and roll it into the weekend totals. And so that's not a legit comparison when you compare it to the next weekend. The next weekend is typically a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And so you were rolling in all those Thursday night totals into that. So I always hate hearing those kind of numbers. So I like to look at the numbers and do a comparison on just pick a couple days that you can really compare. And, you know, the weekends are, for me, it's just look at the Saturday and Sunday and take a look at that drop. So it's kind of in line with what you would expect for this type of film, even just the, the really negative reviews that it's gotten from the critics. I think actually it's impressive based on the really negative reviews that mm-hmm. it's gotten, that people are still going to see the movie. And I do believe, and I've seen this a lot on Twitter, word of mouth is winning over on on this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's already projected to be number one at the box office this weekend currently, which will make its third week in a row as number one. Right. Now, granted, there's not a lot of real competition to it, which, you know, that's why you schedule movies a certain way. You schedule it. You, all blockbusters get scheduled so that they don't have real competition for at least two to three weeks because they want to stay number one for a while. But it did have major competition from Sausage Party. And I'm not saying because it was a comparable film, but because it was attracting the same demographic that had the most enthusiasm for the film. Uh, okay. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Especially, yeah. like you said, Doc's analysis of who found this, who, who was rating Suicide Squad highly, and you talk about especially the younger crowd, mm-hmm. I I can completely connect with you on that. Yeah, because I mean, it was, a, I think the demographic was 25 and under, gave it a cinema score of A, and that was a large percentage of the audience. I can't remember what the numbers were. We talked about it last week. It was huge. Yeah, it was huge. This is a young crowd. Mm-hmm. I mean, this movie is appealing to a younger generation, and I think even Kevin Smith said that in his review of the film. He was like, it's like Hot Topic brought to life. Right. So, you know, I agree with that. But still, it's raking in money, and it's doing incredible weekday numbers, too. I thought it was like $13 million on its first Monday or yeah, something like that. And then that. it even it was, went up. It went up like almost 9 or 10% the next day. On Tuesday, it was at around 13 or 14 It was just enormous numbers. So there was a lot of, a lot of people were seeing this film early. And so to me, that again, 
that's where I think it's misleading to just blindly look at one weekend versus another. If you have huge enthusiasm, kind of front-loaded on a film, the second weekend is naturally going to be a higher percent drop than it normally would. So what are our what are our dollar amounts? Uh, at least what are the most recent dollar amounts that we have to say how much Suicide Squad has raked in? Yeah, I haven't seen Thursday's numbers yet, but as of Wednesday, actually, I think actually yesterday, Warner Brothers put out, and this was before Thursday night numbers, but they had put out that on the 13th day, they've already passed $500 million worldwide. And this is before every market is even open worldwide at this point. But look at these numbers. So domestically, they have $238 million, And then in the international markets, it's at $271 million. And this is as of, I assume this is probably Wednesday's data. So we're already above half a billion dollars just within the first 13 days. And then listen to the markets that haven't even opened yet. By the time we're recording, Germany just record uh, just started uh, yesterday, well, on Thursday. The night we're recording, Austria opens up. Greece is next week. And then Japan will jump in on September 10th. Yeah. So those are some pretty decent markets that haven't even started to be included in those worldwide totals. Yeah, I'm going to be real interested in that Japan total as well to see what kind of uh, enthusiasm they have for the film. I'm curious because I think Katana might be an interesting draw, especially now, yes, thank you, everyone who pointed out she does speak one line of English. <laughs> Our mistake. You can stop it now. I know. I, I got that correction from literally probably about eight different listeners. So, Oh, when Greg Katzman even like DM'd us to tell us that. And I was like, <laughs> Greg, thanks. We know. Appreciate it. Uh, so I, when I saw my third viewing of the film, actually Saturday morning, and as when I was seeing it with my wife, I, as I was watching, I'm like, oh, she did say a line in English and because we had just recorded the night before. And I decided, you know, I could edit that out, but yeah, I'll just go ahead and, you know, keep it in there. Let people know that we're not flawless. <laughs> thanks, Tim. Thanks. <laughs> Which I don't think we needed to go out of our way to kind of prove that. <laughs> Man. Well, and I think it's also interesting that this upcoming, well, the weekend that we're recording right now, IMAX was actually scheduling more to. 2D IMAX showings. I was that's really incredible surprised to me. by that. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, I, I didn't know, was there nothing else out that would normally be IMAX? Or I'm, I'm like, I'm like sitting here going, who, who doesn't already have it in IMAX? Who wasn't going to have it in IMAX? That's... Well, maybe they pulled a lot of the Sausage Party viewings in IMAX out. <laughs> oh, stop it with your Sausage Party, honestly. Um, and, and once again, this is all happening and it's probably not going to show in China, which is a big dollar hit. Yeah, that's probably a 10% hit. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I think that's maybe a, that's higher than I've heard, but I, it's still like in the ballpark of what I've heard. Well, like, but I mean, okay, if you just compare it to Batman v Superman, I think they made $95, 96000000 million in China. Okay. Out of, the, you know, so that's that was more than 10% of the overall total, uh, the international yeah. total. So I would say it's definitely going to take a hit probably in the end. It's, they're probably going to lose out on 60 to $80 million just by not being able to get it in China. But, you know, I, I think it's doing just fine on its own right now, to be honest with you. And just uh, for those of you who don't really, aren't really aware of this, China does censor for tone and content. They're very particular yeah. about what kind of films they allow to come in. And, and so this is, this one didn't make the cut. Uh, Deadpool did not make the cut. I'm surprised by what did make the cut, though, to be honest with you. Like, there's some movies that get into there that you're like, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, speaking about Suicide Squad cleaning up on the charts, um, the album, the pop album, not the musical score, mm-hmm. uh, debuted number one on the Billboard Top 200, which is pretty impressive. Uh, according to Nielsen Music, it earned 182,000 units in the week ending August 11th, which was basically after one week of it being released. And then of that, about 70% was like an actual CD was being purchased. Yes. Which is the best sales debut for a soundtrack in a year and a half. 
wow. I'm actually kind of surprised by that. I mean, I don't really follow this too closely, but I'm pretty surprised that a soundtrack debuts that high. You know, considering we're in an era where, you know, you, you have a lot of individual songs being purchased, we're slowly moving away from the era of people buying the whole album. And so I am pretty surprised by this. But then, you know, I would have to say they, they brought together a lot of just great artists for this album. Of course, you got the 21 Pilots song. You have uh, Sucker for Pain. You have Purple Lamborghini. And so yeah. a lot of these are just, you know, it was really kind of cutting edge artists that were brought in for the soundtrack. So I guess it's maybe not too surprising. But still, the, I maybe the, <laughs> when I read this, the one thing that really kind of surprised me is that we're actually still selling 70% of our sales, I guess, are physical media, which I was yeah, surprised that, by that. that shocked me, actually. Yeah. I mean, granted, this is coming from a guy who did buy a CD. I bought the iTunes version and I bought a CD because that's the way I roll. Right. And I was shocked that that many CDs were still being sold because I've always I thought the the narrative has always been, oh, physical sales are dying and, you know, it's all digital now. And yet, wow, that's a lot of CDs. Yeah, it was surprising. And of course, I have to uh, give a shout out to Imperious Lex, who, of course, gave me crap when I posted a picture of me listening to uh, not this CD, but another Suicide Squad, the score CD. And uh, he says, you know, he goes, what is that? Is, is that what is known as a compact disc? And he said, interesting concept, Tim. Well, screw you, Imperious Lex, really? Yeah. I mean, honestly. 70% of the sales were physical media, so you can go just pound one. <laughs> we, we still love you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so they actually talk about track equivalent albums. And the way I understand this is basically uh, with digital sales, they work it out that X number of downloads equaled about 18%. So what I'm guessing here is, I don't know how exactly they do this, but I think they probably take X number of downloads equals an album. And so if okay. you downloaded Purple Lamborghini 10 times, maybe that would equal an equivalent album. Okay. And so that's the way I look at it. And then they have the numbers for the streaming equivalent albums. And this is, I guess this comes from, you know, whatever kind of contracts they have with like, say, Spotify or whatever. That was about 12% of the sales. Yeah. And it was the largest streaming week for a soundtrack album ever. Yeah. That's wow. amazing. Hey, it's a, it's a good album. I mean, even the songs I wasn't that crazy about, I have slowly grown on as I've listened. I mean, I even was mowing my lawn last weekend and like that was, that was like my workout music as yeah. I mowed the lawn was the Suicide Squad album. It's, 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 it's an energetic album. Definitely That's is. the thing yeah. I can say about it. Yeah. I mean, it very much matched the movie. And, it, you know, there's actually about five or six songs that are not in the film. But when you get the one that, you know, you do recognize from the film, it just gets the blood pumping when I hear it because <laughs> I immediately start thinking of the scene. Well, even the five songs that aren't in the film, at least three of those are just that version on the album wasn't in the film, but a different version of the song was in the movie. Yeah. Like the Grace, You Don't Own Me song. You Don't Own Me and Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. Those songs were in the movie, just not those versions of the songs. Yeah, and then they also had that original BG song. Who, who did the cover on it? I don't remember offhand, but oh, but that I was just rem- in a trailer. It was just in an original Comic-Con trailer. Yo, that was a Confidential MX featuring Becky Hansen, because right. I just grabbed my copy of the CD off the bookshelf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Imperious compact Lex. disc Imperious Lex, yeah. Yeah, how do you like that? Anyway, so pretty cool. I'm really glad to hear that. It just kind of shows that there's, there's definitely a lot of enthusiasm from the people that primarily buy music, which tends to be the youngest of us right now, so. And uh, the forecast is that it's expected to remain number one for its second week. So apparently the estimates predict the soundtrack could sell over 85,000 album units with 50,000 of those being physical albums. Yeah. Wow. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Now, have you get? Uh, you were just talking about listening to the CD. So what were your thoughts on the score that was composed by Stephen Price? Because that was released like three days later. Yeah. You know, and I just finally listened to it and that's what I was listening to on the way to work. So the score was, of course, by Stephen Price, who won an Oscar for Best Original Score for Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity. And he also worked with David Ayer previously on the, the movie 
Fury. So this was his first time ever scoring a comic book film. And so I was really curious to see what the score was going to be because it, it was honestly quite hard to kind of pick out of the film because you tend to kind of gravitate towards the songs that you know, the more kind of energetic songs, you know, that you had. And they, it was certainly mixed in pretty heavily throughout primarily the first two thirds of the film. You know, it was really fun to listen to the soundtrack. And my I guess my first impression was, uh, for one, I definitely did enjoy it. But one thing that I really appreciated was the fact that Stephen Price actually came in and there's like subtle nods to Batman v Superman and Man of Steel. Yeah, Beautiful Lie is is woven in with the Deadshot stuff. Because like the, this, I heard it the first time I saw the movie when Batman captures Deadshot, you hear Beautiful Lie, like themes of it playing in the music. Mm-hmm. It's real, it's just there. Yeah. So it was interesting to me because this is the first, this is the first DC comic book film in five films. Is it five films in a row that, uh, that's not Hans Zimmer? Yeah, that's not Hans Zimmer. I mean, I think Green Lantern was in her somewhere, right? Um, yes, yeah, somewhere in there. But, you know, the ones that matter, I guess is the way you could put it, was, you know, the Dark Knight trilogy was all Hans Zimmer. Yep. And then Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. Yeah. So this was the first time we kind of heard something outside of just beautiful influence from Hans Zimmer and with Junkie XL and, and uh, Batman v Superman. So it definitely felt a little different. But the, the fact that he included those little nods to Hans Zimmer's score and Junkie XL's, I really, really like that. So the, he had an interview on DC Comics and uh, it was interesting that it was his first superhero score and he considered it a challenge and I love whenever you interview people they're like oh yeah I read comics when I was a kid and I love them and it's like suddenly everyone's kind of admitting that yeah. and I don't feel like that's something people would admit back in the day. No probably not. Yeah. And you know they ask him what his favorite uh, superhero score was and well, of course what else would he say but John Williams Superman. I mean yeah. who doesn't love that score? <laughs> right. I mean let's be honest it's yeah. one of the, it's one of if not the uh, if not the greatest at least the most iconic mm-hmm. would you agree with that statement oh i think definitely i mean it was it was the first superhero score of anything really i mean you've had superhero films before that but i mean that was the first like hollywood film kind of score that i think had any kind of significance oh yeah absolutely yeah and then you know of course uh he, he probably didn't say danny elfman i'm sure he would have listed danny elfman <sighs> as well Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, he he said, you know, David Ayer really had a singular vision. And so his job was really try to merge his music with the visual that David Ayer was trying to basically execute in his film. So he tried not to carry too much baggage with him from all this intimidating canon, as he said, of all this different superhero music that he's had. And so that was kind of like challenge that he had to put together the score. Well, he also went to talk about how rock music influenced his score. And I have to admit, those were the tracks that really caught my attention. Mm -hmm. Because I I don't want to be a little party pooper, but there were some tracks that felt a little generic, like generic superhero score kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But there were several times where I heard the electric guitars and I heard the synthesizers and it just kind of added a different flavor to those tracks. And then those are the ones where I kind of sat up and took notice when I was listening, where it stopped being just background noise and I found myself stopping and just listening to those tracks. Yeah, Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I I think I had to exact same impression. I just I didn't put it to words like you just did. But yeah, that's exactly what I was feeling as well. So they asked him what his favorite character was. And he said really enjoyed writing all the different squad members. But he particularly loved working with Deadshot and Diablo. And he said with Deadshot, his theme needed to really work from everything that Deadshot was going through with the yearning for his daughter and the moments that he was trying to show the squad just how remarkably skilled he was. And so that was kind of a big challenge to do from the score. And he loved Diablo just basically because of his whole backstory. Now, I, I will have to say this. I, I want to go back and see if I could figure out what the particular themes are for each of these members because I, I didn't necessarily pick that out from 
my viewings of the film. Did you happen to catch anything? Well, see, it's the Deadshot theme that I felt like he really borrowed from the Batman theme. Because because I even heard that sort of beautiful lie sounding theme come up when in the movie Deadshot is like shooting down all of those eyes of the adversary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he turns the Rick flag afterwards and goes, that's me cutting and running. Yeah. (laughs) And while he's firing his guns, you... uh, it played what I would have called the Batman theme from Batman v Superman. So it was it was interesting how he incorporated that idea of beautiful lie and kind of incorporated it into Deadshot. Mm-hmm. So I just find that interesting because, you know, Deadshot's always been a character because he uses guns. who's always been kind of sometimes played up as like the antithesis of Batman. And so I wonder if something kind of went into that. I don't know. Well, I'm sure they, they were definitely trying to play up the um, adversarial relationship between Batman and Deadshot in this film, uh, which certainly I hope we get to see a little bit more later on. Oh, absolutely. Well, speaking about adversarial with Deadshot, <laughs> Margot Robbie and Will Smith were on BBC One Radio, and apparently, <laughs> I didn't know this was a thing, but BBC One Radio does this segment called Playground Insults, where you're in the recording booth, and they literally just stick two people facing each other, and they basically tell them to insult each other, kind of like in a yo mama joke kind of way, mm-hmm. which was kind of the funny part, because Will Smith totally wanted to crack on Margot Robbie's mother, oh. and the entire time, Margot Robbie's like, don't you talk about yeah. my mother. Oh, yeah. She cut him off at the knees on us. Oh, my God. And I don't know. I think Will Smith was too nice of a guy because Margot Robbie just destroyed him. She absolutely him. destroyed him. Yeah. I was really surprised. I, I thought he was going to just like fillet her, you know, with insults. And he it almost seemed like he didn't quite know what to do. I felt like he had so many things he wanted to say, but like he felt chivalrous and like it would have been so inappropriate because like he knows so much about her. <laughs> yeah. They even say that. They even say constantly through this video that we know too much about each yeah. other. This is too easy yeah and we feel so bad i think the my favorite one and it was basically kind of what closed out the whole playground insult segment was margot robbie said to will smith that and i'm not even gonna try to do the accent or maybe i should no gareth will get onto you so bad because he got onto me (laughs) don't even attempt an australian accent yeah you have the face of a 20 year old but the hearing of a 90 year old and then she kind of paused and she says should i say that a bit louder (laughs) that was just yeah you did what i did you went cockney you didn't go australian i'm sorry oh i didn't even try to do an accent so oh you did though you did sir Uh, I did not try. I'm not saying you tried, but you did, but you you succeeded. <laughs> Very good. So Gareth, I was not trying. Anyway, that was a that's a fun little segment. We should probably tweet that out so that people can hear it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So apparently, David Ayer had filmed a little bit of of a backstory for Slipknot. Now, of course, Slipknot we saw extremely very little to really nobody's surprise in this film. He was the red shirt, and we all knew yeah, it. It was a red shirt, a Star Trek reference. So though, uh, he actually revealed that he did shoot some additional material for Slipknot, and they were going to actually use it in an introduction sequence but they actually when they were cutting the film together they just decided to just cut it out for the final theatrical cut and really it was just in a matter of you know for the interest of time you know because this was a two hour and ten minute film when it's all said and done and actually it was only two hours and three minutes it was actually very short yeah you know it was advertised as two hours and ten but I it did, it was shorter wasn't it yeah it actually when when it actually got released the they adjusted the running time to say it was two hours and three minutes okay and it was a quick film I'll have yeah. to say that but yeah, this interview was happening on the Empire Film Podcast. Right. And uh, he also said that 
that basically everyone knew he was the red shirt. Why we weren't even going to try to pretend he wasn't yeah. the red shirt. <laughs> so why why spend more screen time on why him? Why bother? David Arrow was actually asked about the stranglings that were referenced by Adam Beach and when he was prepping for the film. And and David Arrow says, you know, that might be more about his sort of personal journey in tr- getting ready for the character more than anything. But he says, really, I guess it does make sense. He is a rope guy, so he goes, I could see why he can make those connections. So apparently, Adam Beach trying to uh, study people getting strangled and all that was really him doing it. It wasn't David Ayer's direction. Yeah, whatever. For a guy who was in the movie even less than Jared Leto's Joker. I mean, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Okay, so there was this interesting article, and we're actually going to reference this article several times because several movies got sort of mentioned. But Michael Calia, Calia is writing for the Wall Street Journal, and he was introdu- he was interviewing Charles Roven and Richard Suckle. And first they started talking about Suicide Squad. And of course, you know, Richard Suckle was saying, we're ecstatic that the fans support the movie so much and that there's been such great fan reaction to the film, basically trying to downplay the critical filleting that the film has gotten. Yeah. So executive producer Charles Roven actually went on to talk about the multiple cuts that we all hear about on this film. And he said, yeah, I was very interested about that, especially since we brought up the Hollywood Reporter article on our review episode. He kind of tackled it head on, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. He says, you know, of course, there were a couple of different cuts of the movie, but they all really had to do with really finding the final shape of the, of the movie itself. And that's actually what we understood it to be as well, that they had a couple different cuts that they kind of tested to see what would work, you know, what the audience reactions were. And, and that was really part of their process here. And he says, you know, they've been doing this a long time and that's not the first time something like this has happened and it certainly won't be the last. I had to agree with that. I mean, people talk about it like, oh my God, what an atrocity. Yeah. I'm sure that happens all the time. All the time, especially, you know, especially in something like this. And, and actually I have another comment on this. So, but he went on to talk about big tentpole films like Suicide Squad or, you know, they always face these really hard, firm release dates. You know, there's no budget on it because it's part of a shared universe. And so the filmmakers really do not have the luxury of, of a really long post-production process here where they can look at, you know, a lot of different cuts of the film. They really have to kind of get to the final cut pretty quickly. And he says sometimes in order to get this work done that you, you just have to bring in more people to actually help out because that was one of the things that was talked about in The Hollywood Reporter was that there were some other people that were brought in to help with the editing duties. And he's just saying that this is what you have to do to, to basically meet the deadlines. So I do want to kind of comment on this. Now, this comes up all the time. And I basically want to say that Warner Brothers is very much still a filmmaker-driven studio. And But when you deal with IP like this, and when we talk about IP, we're talking about intellectual property. When we deal with this shared universe, and it's a, it's a major, major part of Warner Brothers' strategy to be profitable going forward, you have to be somewhat sensitive to not giving filmmakers complete control because you have to kind of protect what's going to happen for the, the another eight or ten films that are coming after it. And so this is not the least bit unexpected or unusual that they would, you know, come in and get a little bit involved in what David Ayer was trying to do. And of course, like what Zack Snyder was trying to do in Batman v Superman. It's, you know, this is this is the role of the studios. They have to come in and try to protect protect what's going to come for the rest of the brand. Here. I mean, they're the boss. They are let's, the boss. Let's, yeah. let's, let's be honest about that. It, it, they hired the director. Let's, yeah. let's be on, the director is an employee. We like the director to do. And I'm going to be honest. I hope someday that that original vision, the darker one that obviously didn't test well, I, I, I'm going to be honest, I, even if it didn't test well, I hope it ha- it gets released in some form or fashion. Yeah, Because I, I still want to see that version of the movie. I do too. You know, I think that will come out once they've been able to kind of firmly establish a strong following and a fan base for this franchise, which I feel like they've already essentially done that. But I think what they do is once they get a couple more films in, then it's kind of safe to give this different interpretation of Suicide Squad without really conflicting and, and confusing 
in the audience. So I don't think we're going to see that cut when we get the original Blu-ray release here. But I agree with you, Scott. I think we will see that at some point, somewhere a little bit down the road. We'll actually see that original vision. There's a ton of footage out there. I know. And we're about to talk about what Rovin said about Jared Leto's footage. But it, it just reminds me, and I mentioned this on Twitter, this reminds me of Blade Runner. And I mean, I love that film. It was it was a Warner Brothers film. I've read the book about the making of it. And it's, God, if you thought, if you thought Suicide Squad was controversial, why do you hear about what happened during Blade Runner? Right. But, you know, you could buy, uh, there was an anniversary release of it where there are literally five to six different cuts of that film yep. that you can get on one Blu-ray set. And one of them is a cut made up of just the deleted stuff. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about all of Jared Leto's deleted scenes and, you know, why they were removed, I would not be surprised if we ended up with like a special feature that's just, here's all the Joker scenes arranged chronologically so that you could almost tell the story of all the deleted footage. Right. It's 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 not unheard of. And if we're patient, I'm sure it will come out. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it'll come out too, because I mean, let's be honest here. It's a business and they're going to take in as much box office money as they can right now. And then when that's finally dwindled away, they're going to go ahead and do a, a Blu-ray release and they're going to have a ton of sales, probably like Batman v Superman be sitting on the charts for quite a while. We're about to talk about that. So you're going to have that. And then down the road, they're going to have this ultimate a cut of some sort. Maybe they call it director's cut or maybe they call it the, the Joker cut, whatever they call it. They're going to put that thing out and they're going to get all the same fans to buy this material again. Literally, that's what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm already saying my wallet is gone. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'll, I'll be there. I'll be a sucker. Yeah. You know, I'll be there. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, they, you know, because they are a filmmaker driven studio, you got to remember. So David Ayer had to make some concessions on this thing. And I'm sure ultimately he's going to get his chance. I would I would imagine they're going to give him a chance to go ahead and do this other cut. But the timing's got to be right for it. And the other thing, too, one last other point I want to make about this filmmaker driven studio is it might be filmmaker driven overall. But when it comes to the DC properties, you know, they're going to have a little bit tighter controls on it. But you got to remember part of what the studio does is they allow these filmmakers to make other films, some of their passion projects. And so that's where he's going to have his complete control. Yeah. And and that's what will make them happy, to be honest. Right. Now, we kind of teased about this. So Rovin did talk about the Jared Leto footage. And there's been a lot of hoo-ha and controversy about that. But basically what Rovin had to say is David Ayer shoots a lot of film. Mm -hmm. He's not one of those directors who only shoots what he needs. He shoots what he wants. And that when it came to the Joker, apparently Leto wanted to do a lot of takes and do a lot of experimentation, which means that, you know, there's a lot of footage out there. Scenes went on for longer than they probably should. And then, you know, when it comes time to cut it into a film, you know, you're not going to put all of that in the final movie. And from what I'm hearing, a lot of that was Harley backstory to the point where it detracted from the squad story. And the film was supposed to be about the squad and it wasn't a Harley movie. Right. So that's why the stuff ended up on the cutting room floor. Now, do I want to see all that? Absolutely. Yeah. But I, depending on how much of it there was, intellectually, I can understand cutting out the film, even though I still want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about two different things here. We're talking about a film that you have to cut down to something that makes sense, that kind of keeps the story kind of tight. And so like you said, you know, we didn't, it was really a story about the squad and not as much about Harley. So all the stuff that they put together when they have the assembly cut of the film, the assembly is just a, a compilation of all the footage. And there's a ton of stuff in there that just simply doesn't belong. And they have to sort through all that and figure out, okay, what's working, what's not, what really kind of ties all the stuff together. And they take that assembly cut and cut it down. So there's all this other stuff out there that was simply cut just because it, it, it just probably didn't fit what they were trying to ultimately achieve or what they felt was the right tone for the film ultimately when they when they basically had all the footage put together. But yeah, I think we'll we'll see that additional cut someday. So hang tight. Oh, yeah. 
yeah. So let's talk some Justice League. Yeah. Our buddy Mark Hughes uh, apparently was having a Twitter conversation, and I, I guess it was kind of like a Q&A, like some guy was kind of t- uh, was tweeting him, and he was kind of responding back. We do know that Mark Hughes reported, I forgot what article it was. I know we talked about it on the show, that Jeff Johns and Ben Affleck have been doing some rewrites to Terry as Justice League script. In that case, primarily to make sure that the Batman character will fit with the Batman solo movie that they are writing. So they wanted to make sure that the character remained consistent uh, through the films. However, Mark Hughes coyly, because I think he knows information that he knows he doesn't need to share, that apparently Johns then went on and made some additional rewrites to the Justice League script in a larger capacity than just making sure that Batman's character syncs up with the solo film. Right. Um, I don't really have a problem with that, do you? I mean, no. it's, it's Jeff no, Johns. No. I don't have much problem with anything that he writes. No, I don't have a problem with that at all. I mean, let's face it, Chris Terrio is not, uh, he's not steeped in the lore of DC Comics and, and you know, all the different things that the fan base wants to see. So, you know, it, it's not the least bit surprising that Jeff Johns would come in here and try to kind of flesh out the script a little bit further. And uh, let's face it, that's what Jeff Johns has done his entire career is he's taken a lot of things where very difficult and inconvenient things that have actually happened, like say in the comics, let's go back to Green Lantern. Green Lantern basically became the bad guy, you know, that basically destroyed that property in the comics. Jeff Johns came in and found a way to tie all that story together and make it into something phenomenal. And that was Green Lantern Rebirth. And so that's what he does. He comes in and and he kind of pulls things together and, you know, harmonizing it and makes a great story out of it. So I think we're starting to see his influence on, you know, some of the stuff going forward. Well, and along with this whole new sort of, you know, he's kind of a president of DC Entertainment and he's got some sort of head honcho deal, you know, over that newly deformed DC Films division. I think this is just him doing what he's been hired to do, to be honest with you. Right. Exactly right. Yeah, because I mean, getting all this stuff kind of harmonized between the comics and the films is going to do nothing but just help grow the brand across all the different avenues. Okay. So Henry Cavill had a little fun on Instagram this past week <laughs> and I I I kind of kind of geeked out myself. Did you see this, Tim? Well, of course I did. Mhm. So what are we talking about, Tim? Okay, we're talking about a close-up view of like the S-Shield and what was interesting about it, it was is kind of like in a black and white color. I couldn't tell if it was a black and white filter or if it was simply just a black suit. So what's the significance of that? Well, if anybody read The Return of Superman in the early 90s, you know, this was the storyline following Death of Superman, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Funeral for a Friend, and Reign of the Superman. When Superman came back from the dead, he was in a black suit that was being used to help him regain his life and his powers. It was kind of a solar... Was it kind of like a solar suit? Like it was just really trapping in the solar energy even more so than he normally would? Yeah. Is that... I think that's, that's what the, I remember, yeah. The MacGuffin was... <laughs> but basically it was very 90s looking where, you know, he had the mullet and he had the black suit and he had the big gun mm-hmm. and it was just a way of like, Superman's back and then of course he eventually gets his, you know, normal blue and red suit back and we have Superman but that just means that, you know, we did the death of Superman in Batman v Superman and it looks like we're gonna get some serious nods to the return of Superman in Justice League and I just couldn't be happier. Yeah, and this completely has like a Jeff Johns feel to it. Well, you know what? I, I feel like this is some Zack Snyder in there, personally. I, I feel like Zack, Zack Snyder seems to really enjoy the comics of the late 80s and early 90s. I would not be surprised if that's if that even came from Snyder himself, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, but I feel like, you know, this is, I guess what I'm saying is this feels like this is giving kind of homage and praise to 
you know, the source material. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then in that same Wall Street Journal article we were just talking about with Suicide Squad, Chuck Roven and Richard Suckle, you know, stepped in to talk about, you know, we stand by Zach. Zach's a great, you know, director. Uh, you know, you need to pay attention to the criticism, but you also need to stay true to your vision. And they also acknowledge the same thing we've heard over and over again, that yes, the tone is changing between Batman v Superman and Justice League, but that was always part of the plan for the tone to change. Yeah, and that was said by Chris Terrio even before Batman v Superman came out, that that yes. was always part of the plan. And that the variety of characters, especially with them introducing Aquaman and Flash and Cyborg, that, I mean, the tone's going to have to change when you bring in all those different characters. But once again, kind of like Deborah Snyder did on the Justice League set visit, Chuck Roven did acknowledge that some consideration was taken into the backlash that happened post-Batman v Superman. Right. So, you know, the BVS fallout, as we've come to know it as, you know, they're not blind to it is basically what they're saying. And they want to make sure that never happens again. Yeah. And we've even said that. Obviously, there is just this kind of built in kind of like hatred towards what Zack Snyder does. And so it's something he has to reconcile and see if he can figure out, okay, how can he bridge that gap between the people that look at his work negatively and what he's trying to do? And so, you know, that's something obviously very hopeful he's trying to do here with Justice League. And and I think he probably is. So moving on from producers to the actors and Justice Rocks. (laughs) um, Apparently the cast is having some fun bonding, you know, behind the scenes on the set of Justice League. Yeah. Because on everyone's social media pages, pretty much everyone's in a band. Yeah. Yeah. seems like. Well, Zack Snyder tweeted out that photo of Jason Momoa with the guitar. And actually, what's kind of interesting is he, you you get drawn to the guitar. But if you actually look at what's going on, he's got like battle armor on. He's got his costume on, I think. Yeah. I think that's like his Aquaman outfit. It's yeah. kind of cool. It is pretty cool. So yeah, Jason Momoa, of course, has an electric guitar, it looks like there. And then, of course, the bandmates were in one of their trailers. And uh, you see Ezra Miller on the drums. Uh, you see Jason Momoa playing guitar. It looks like there's another shot of Gal Gadot actually playing on the drums as well. And so they were kind of joking around about, uh, hey, you know, we've been doing this little stuff uh, in between takes or whatever it might be off hours, but they're playing some music. They're having a lot of fun. And so Gal Gadot actually came out and says, hey, you know, what should we actually name the band? And uh, I didn't really look to see if anyone has come up with any clever names. Did you have anything by any chance? Uh, I think it was the, the Justice Rocks was the one that I saw. And I was like, hee, 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 hee. I mean, it, it's corny, but, you know, th- that that place to me. So I'm OK with that. Yeah. So this is pretty cool. I mean, Ezra Miller is actually a member of a band. It's a three person band called Sons of an illustrious father, and it's a little trio out of Brooklyn. It's uh, two guys and a girl, and and a pizza place. <laughs> no, not not quite. But it's actually, uh, if you ever give them a listen, search for them on YouTube, or you know, check out their their webpage. It's like sons of an illustrious and they actually do really kind of experimental type music. They actually describe their music as future folk and heavy meadow. And I'm not sure how to take the heavy meadow, but it really reminds me a lot of like early Nirvana type of uh, music. So it's pretty cool that he's actually. Uh, pretty musically talented, which I actually didn't know until recently. Oh, cool. I'll have to give them a listen. I, I mean, I have to be honest, when you say early Nirvana, and I'm like, okay, I never listened to Nirvana, so <laughs> I don't have any basis for comparison, yeah. but I'll give them a shot. You know, yeah. why not? Well, and then uh, Gal Gadot actually had a song that she had posted online. Uh, she was doing like kind of a cover of that Eurythmic song, uh, Here Comes the Rain Again. I, I would say, you know, she was pretty good, but I, me personally, I kind of looked at it, I'm like, okay, she's better than I would do, so I'm not going to criticize too much. But yeah, it wasn't wasn't anything to write home about. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was it was okay. Yeah, it was okay. It was just okay. It was basically I described it as she would be one of the people voted off of American Idol. Yeah, but she would have at least made it past the audition process. Yeah, and she would have made it into the audition process, which I would never even made.
acclimated to that. There you go. Yep. Okay, so talking about something that apparently has been made news, but Tim and I are like, dude, we knew about this like months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, sources are saying, Cyborg will be in the Flash movie. <laughs> Thanks, Variety and Comic Book Movie, but uh, Mark Hughes told us about that in April. Yeah. Deborah Snyder kind of already leaked that one. Yeah, and then actually, and we decided, well, let's just go ahead and cover it because, you know, we do have a ton of new listeners coming in. And uh, so, you know, every once in a while, we, we just want to repeat some news that we've already talked about before. So for the longtime listeners, just bear with us. But yeah, I mean, Cyborg is going to be in the film. And this actually came out, I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, director Rick Famuyiwa, he actually came out and there was this little meme going out on, I think it was like Wednesday or Thursday. It was basically like, says who? Hashtag says who? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, all it was is it's something stupid going on on the political side. You know, if you know the politicians, when it, when it's election time, both politicians from either party are all for, you know, all the different politicians, they always have their, what they call their surrogates going online and they'll go on the talk shows and all that. And they, they, they try to speak for and defend, uh, you know, their respective candidates and all that. And, and they're always typically bad. <laughs> you know, I don't care what side of the aisle they're from. No, no, they're all annoying. They're all annoying. And so uh, basically there was this real funny little bit that went on with one of these surrogates for one of the candidates. And so that's where it came from. So like when this news came out about Cyborg being a film, that's where Rick tweeted this thing out and he says, says who? And people that didn't know what this meme was all about, they're like, oh my gosh, he's questioning it. He's saying this is not true. And it's no, that's not what he's. No, no, no. He's totally, he's totally ribbing you guys. It's, 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 yeah. it's all a joke. It's all a joke. It's all a joke. But it was, it was pretty funny. Uh, I have to admit, like I saw it and I was like, huh? And then it took like two or three tweets later to go, oh, okay. Gotcha. Never mind. I understand what's going on. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I got to admit, like I thought I had figured it out, which uh, I had, um, I hadn't been on the news all day. So I, I knew he had said the one thing about says who, and, uh, and I had actually seen the video of the surrogate doing this little thing that started the whole bit. And I'm like, oh, I know what Rick's doing. So I tweeted out. I'm like, hey, I, I think I got this figured out. And the internet had already figured it out like, you know, 45 minutes earlier than me. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. But it was just because I was kind of oblivious to the rest of the news at the time. Well, moving on to Aquaman, apparently somebody from Slash Film cornered Will Bell, who was writing the Aquaman script yeah. at the Television Critics Association, a party. Because apparently Bell's been working on a uh, training day TV show for mm -hmm. CBS. And, you know, this guy kind of started just, you know, digging in about the Aquaman script. And he was like, um, well, not all the action takes place underwater. You know, some of the most fun parts of the movie do actually take place on dry land. <laughs> kind of an Aquaman joke that's been, you know, going on for years. Right. And he asked if the screenplay was complete. And he said, nope, still working on it with uh, James Wan and Jeff Johns. So, nope, it's not done. And then he was asked if it was being held up because of Justice League. And he's like, no, 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 they know what's happening. Everybody knows what's happening. So, it's not that. Um, we're just trying to make sure that it's the best movie possible. Yeah. Well, they tried to get him to address rumor about Black Mana. Wasn't going to do it. Nope. Yep. He wasn't going to say anything. But of course, who else is going to be the villain in an Aquaman movie? Let's be honest here. Right. <laughs> and apparently he's also working on a script for Legend of Conan. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm wondering, like, is that going to be like a sequel to that uh, Jason Momoa Conan the Barbarian remake? No, no. This is actually, this is an actual sequel to the original Conan. Oh, like what? Schwarzenegger? Like it's an actual sequel. Like it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so it actually begins where that one ended. Oh, alrighty then. Uh, and in another Aquaman news, Amber Heard, uh, who of course is our Mara, and apparently her divorce with Johnny Depp has been settled amicably. So um, she's going to receive $7 million and she's going to donate that money to a charity for abused women. And so I hope now that 
her legal troubles are over, that hopefully she'll make her way over to London because I know she's supposed to be in Justice League. And then that means that hopefully she'll be ready and ready to go for uh, Aquaman. Yeah. Pass the power to her. Yeah, there's a lot of criticism unnecessarily thrown towards Amber Heard saying she was a money digger, digging for gold and all this. And all the money that she got from the settlement, she 100% of it, she donated to charities. So, mm, well, good. It's so good for her. A um, little bit of Batman v Superman news. Yeah. Um, we're selling some Blu rays and some DVDs, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So, this actually comes out. Batman has topped the home release charts for now four weeks in a row. And that means that Batman has finished number one on uh, in this, the service or this organization is called NPD and on their video scan chart for overall disc sales for four consecutive weeks has been at the top of the charts. And it's been followed, and interestingly enough, by Batman the Killing Joke. And so this Batman animated film is actually way up there in video sales, which I had no idea was going to do that well. I didn't either. And apparently, if you broke the numbers down to just Blu-ray, Killing Joke was actually number one last week, the mm-hmm. week it uh, released. And now, and then this previous week, which is the week ending August 14th, Batman v Superman is back at number one for both overall and Blu-ray only sales with The Killing Joke as number two on the Blu-ray sales chart. Right. So that's pretty dang impressive, I have to say. That's real impressive. Like, uh, you know, for as badly as that film was maligned and the fact that it made a, you know, what did it make? $863 million overall? Something like that, Something yeah. like that overall. So you still had a ton of people actually see this in the theaters and there's still so much interest in it. This thing has been number one on the sales chart for, for a month now. That's just amazing to me. So I would not have expected that. Yeah, and, and some of this isn't even the ultimate edition. Like, this is people actually buying the theatrical cut because, I mean, like Redbox, you can only get the theatrical cut. The theatrical cut is trending on Voodoo for digital sales and digital rentals. So I'm surprised. I thought, you know, everyone would be going for the extended cut, but the theatrical cut is still apparently getting some love out there. I'm yeah. I'm surprised. Yeah. So anyway, good for uh, Warner Brothers Home Video. So let's move on to some DC TV. And I want to talk about The Flash because yes. there was a cut. There was a really interesting interview with the executive producer, Todd Helbing. Uh, He was first addressing the fact that there is going to be another speedster villain this season. And of course, there's been some criticism. And I'm going to be honest, I've been leveling some criticism. Like, okay, we had Reverse Flash season (laughs) one. We had Zoom season two. And now we have uh, Savitar for season three. And they were like, well, aren't you going to be kind of concerned that you're kind of just repeating yourself over and over again? And I liked what Todd said. He said, yeah, I think in general, if you have some of the uh, these other metahumans, it gets hard to show how Barry can't get them. But if you have another speedster, you have someone on an equal level to provide that threat that a lot of these other metas can't do. Mm-hmm. Okay, I get that. You know, it's like, you know, you need someone who, who can catch up. So I'll, I'll go with that. But he did say that Savitar is going to be much more of a psychological villain in a weird way. So that's going to distinguish him from Zoom and from Reverse Flash. And then he went on to say that because Dr. Alchemy is also going to be a major villain in season three, that apparently Dr. Alchemy's plan and Savitar's plan are not much different. So you're going to see some, you know, some crossover between those two villains. Hmm, cool. uh, Alchemy apparently is going to provide some darker moments, even though they're trying to go back to some of that season one lightness because they felt like it got pretty dark with Zoom in season two. Yeah. But he said uh, Alchemy is going to provide some of those holy, you know what moments <laughs> that we really love to have in our show. I can't wait to see how they portray him in this, in this series. I don't, I know nothing about Dr. Alchemy. That is a villain I have no experience with whatsoever. I actually know Savitar because I read the Mark Wade Wally West run, mm-hmm. but I know nothing about alchemy, to be yeah, honest with you. I- I'm just going to be more interested to see how they actually do the costume, if they actually try to have it real comic faithful. I'm going to have to Google this costume just to know what you're talking about. OK, 
Okay. Uh, Helbing went on to talk about Flashpoint, and he said that Flashpoint is not going to be a whole season thing. He said, you know, much like we did the Earth 2 episodes, well, you know, we couldn't do a whole half season of Earth 2, so we did like two or three episodes on Earth 2. And so in the same regard, Flashpoint isn't going to be this extended, you know, amount of episodes in the timeline. I think it was the idea that Flashpoint will influence the season without Flashpoint being the crux of the entire season, Mm -hmm. which I don't terribly mind. There's only so long you can go with an alternate timeline bit. Yeah. Uh, And then he said that talking about the musical crossover, which I was so glad there was something about the musical (laughs) because I could talk about that because really it bummed me out, Tim, to hear how much you and – I mean, you and Brent just like blazed over it. And I was like, (laughs) dude, that was like the most exciting piece of news. No, I am not all about the musical crossover. In fact, uh, I'm just really not interested in it, to be honest with you. Oh, well, stop it. No, that's going to be fun. (laughs) I love Once More with Feeling on Buffy. I love the mayhem of the music meister on Batman the Brave of the Bold. But that's that's where you kind of sold me on it. When you mentioned the possibility of Neil Patrick Harris, I mean, you're just speculating this. Oh, absolutely. Just speculating. Yes. That's where you got my attention. I'm like, oh, Neil Patrick Harris. Now you got now you've got my attention. Well, you got to think about it. Joss Whedon did Buffy and and he also directed an episode of Glee. He did that. He did Dr. Horrible with Neil Patrick Harris. Neil Patrick Harris was the original music meister voice. I just think you know I'm not the only one thinking that. You know they know this. Oh, I know. I know. And, you know, I I think there's just too many kind of weird things being aligned here that it might actually happen like you were suggesting. Yeah, and so apparently Helbing said that uh, a dance sequence is not particularly out of the question in the crossover. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm not going to say. I just think of Spider-Man 3, to be honest with you. Oh, no, no, no. No. (laughs) But that's what, see, but that's where my hesitation comes from because I love Spider-Man and I don't want to see that. But, but that was completely out of place. If this is a musical... It, yeah, because this would be completely in place. No, it would. I mean, <laughs> come on, look at... Once again, I will go back to Once More with Feeling from Buffy Season 6. They came up with an excellent conceit that made it work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I'm hope they're, they said they're hoping to get at least one original song for the Supergirl episode and at least one original song for the Flash episode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like the idea of original music instead of just singing covers. Yeah. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah, I'm open-minded to this. You know, I'm definitely open-minded. You know, I, I, I have a lot of trust in the creative team behind us. So, you know, I will just it back and and I hope to be completely proven wrong on us. Okay, and Helbing said that it's very close to Berlanti's heart. So yeah. you know he's putting his heart and soul into this. So I think we're I, I just be open, Tim. Be open to the music <laughs> in your heart. Yeah. So let's run through some of this stuff pretty quick. We got some other bullet points here. So uh, the top kind of a famous Flash villain is actually going to be making his way to the show. And when I say when I say his, I mean, actually her, because in the comics, it's a he. Well, actually, in the show, it's actually going to be a she and it's going to be played by Ashley Rickards. And she's a star of the show Awkward. And so executive producer Aaron Helbing actually said that episode four is going to actually feature kind of the origin of Mirror Master. Oh, wow. So Teddy Sears is going to be returning as the Black Flash at some point. <laughs> so this came of from Andrew Kreisberg. Yeah, of course. So he said, you know, obviously they the, they ended the way they did on season two on purpose. They love working with Teddy Sears. Amazing actor, amazing person. They don't really have any immediate plans to bring him back, but we all know that he's coming back at some point. You know, that he's sure that we're going to be seeing him in the future and, and that's going to be actually a pretty fun return. Well, the, they gave him that Black Flash look and I knew that had to be intentional at the end of the season. So right. it's like, thank you. Thank yep. you for acknowledging that. So Grant Gustin was interviewed by 
TV insider Damian Holbrook. And this was actually a fun little interview, very quick. And there's a few tidbits in here I want to touch on. They asked Grant Gustin what his favorite DC comic character would be that he could trade costumes with. And he had mentioned Arsenal. He said that costume is dope, which Arsenal does have a pretty cool costume. He also said that uh, he's currently reading All-Star Superman, yeah. which is amazing because it's a great comic. Yeah, he actually keeps it in his backpack and he, he's been traveling with it. So that's cool. I love the idea that he's reading some Frank Whiteley and Grant Morrison. And apparently there's an Easter egg that if you go back and in every police station scene since season one, there's been a rubber duck in the background. <laughs> I've never caught that. I'm going to have to go back and watch my season one Blu-ray. I'm yeah. going to be honest with you. Yeah, and he said uh, they kind of slipped this in as like a, a, a little gig and they've actually had it. Sometimes it's actually in a police bag or like an evidence bag that a cop is actually carrying as he's walking past. <laughs> That's so funny to me. Yeah. And then he asked Grant Gustin if he understands any of the time travel stuff that they're actually doing on the show. And he said, well, most of it, uh, maybe close to all of it, uh, he would like to think. So he <laughs> thinks he understands it, but I don't know. <laughs> Do you think he understands it? No, no. I, no I, sometimes even I don't understand it. Not I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. And he asked about uh, what it was like kissing Candace Patton, who plays Iris. He says, you know, was it like kissing your sister? And he says, yeah, a little bit, actually. Uh, he says, kissing scenes in general are pretty technical, but close in a way, that's more like brother and sister you know that, that definitely would make it a bit awkward yeah well running through some Arrow news pretty quick turns out Colton Haynes has not been confirmed for season 5 and this is actually coming from TV line an interview with Wendy Miracle that said we'd love to have Roy back and we're waiting for the right circumstances and the right storyline which I was shocked because I thought that was a done deal for season 5 I thought it was too I, hopefully this doesn't have anything to do with uh, some of the stuff that kind of pulled him from the show to begin with I know he's yeah. kind of dealing with some personal stuff so hopefully that's not the case because it, it seemed to me that this had been confirmed at some point. Yeah. And then this is interesting. Human Target is coming to episode five of season five. Yeah. And he's going to be played by Will Travel, who, if you don't know him, he was the guy who played Nuke in Netflix's Jessica Jones series. Yeah. Uh, you know a little bit more about this character than I do, right? So Christopher Chance is basically uh, he's best described as a master of disguise. And what he basically does in the comics is, you know, he would disguise himself as somebody that's a target of some kind of murder or something like that. And so he would be there to kind of thwart the attack. And so that's basically what he's all about. Now, I had actually forgotten about this. Human Target was actually on a show in early 1990s, and it was involving Rick Springfield on ABC. And it lasted only like seven episodes, but I completely forgot about that. That show was actually called The Human Target, which was based on the Christopher Chance character. And of course, most recently in 2010, we had Human Target, which lasted like two seasons on Fox. Now, this was very loosely based on the Christopher Chance character. Yeah, they didn't even have the Master of the Skies element. Yeah. In that one. And it's really cool because I mean, Human Target was created in the 70s by Lynn Wein, who was also the co-creator of Wolverine, and Carmine Infantino, who is a legend DC artist who actually yeah. helped co-create the Barry Allen Flash. Right. So, awesome. We had a picture come out from Melissa Benoist Instagram, and it was actually a picture of her with Linda Carter on the set of Supergirl. So, Melissa Benoist is actually in a Supergirl costume, and then you see Linda Carter actually dressed up very presidential looking, which is what we, Greg Berlanti has actually hinted that if they were going to have her on that she was going to be the president of the United States and it looks like that's what she's doing. You can see the little flag pin lapel on her, her jacket as well. So Yeah, I think this is for episode three of season two. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Now this is some sad news actually. Yeah. Um, the, uh, ben Queen, the creator and executive producer and showrunner for Powerless on NBC has apparently left the show over creative differences and that doesn't bode well for the show. No, this is actually pretty unfortunate news if you really think about it because they were in actually in the middle of of production on what was supposed to be a mid-season series. Now, up to this point, I believe they've only filmed the pilot. That's my understanding. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. So for them to pull the uh, 
creator or actually the creator to leave the show over creative differences. That's actually not a real good sign for this. So I'm still hoping to see this. Uh, it, you know, I kind of felt like it had a ton of potential to just be a pretty funny show for DC TV. Yeah, apparently, you know, he it was a mutual decision, but he's still working at Warner Brothers Television Studio uh, under his overall deal. So he's not he's not left Warner Brothers, apparently. So we'll stay tuned for that. We'll see if uh, if they kind of get something going on that again. Batman Return of the Caped Crusader, Scott. Holy animated movie, Tim. <laughs> so this is something we've been waiting a long time for. Now, Batman 66, the famous TV show, is actually going to be doing a Batman 66 themed animated film. And it's going to include the voices of Adam West, Burt Ward, and Julie Newmar. And Julie Newmar, of course, played Catwoman. The original Catwoman. The original Catwoman. Yeah, because there were like three of them. Yeah. And it's actually going to include Joker, Riddler, and Penguin as well. Yes, which is kind of cool because those are the exact same villains from the... 1966 live action movie too. Right, right. So that was uh, the trailer that is online, which is really hilarious if you've not seen it. Has Adam West and Burt Ward, and he says that they will be fighting these villains on Earth and space. <laughs> it's perfect. Now this is basically an announcement trailer. It's not really. I didn't take this as a trailer for the actual film itself. Oh no 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 no. This is an announcement trailer. Yeah. yeah. There's no plot in it. Right. But you'll be able to buy this digitally on October 11th and on Blu-ray on November 1st. Uh, they're gonna try to. Get get me to buy this twice no i'm not buying it twice i will wait for the blu-ray probably unless itunes does some great bundle deal yeah if they do a bundle deal i'll do it but uh yeah i'm probably gonna just wait for the blu-ray i prefer to have the physical media because then you can usually get the the digital copy with it yeah absolutely yeah well, um talking a little bit video games injustice 2 released a new character reveal trailer this week that shows that harley quinn and deadshot are going to be in injustice 2 <laughs> now harley quinn's a surprise to me because she was in injustice 1 right but um looking at deadshot's moves i think deadshot Shot's kind of taking the place that Deathstroke had in the right. first game. That's what I got from his gameplay. Yeah. But Harley gets her hyenas, so that's fun. Yeah, I think this is smart because I think Deadshot is really going to become a major character in the DC films going forward. I, I think we're going to see a lot of them, and definitely, you know, with uh, Suicide Squad coming out, people know who Deadshot is now. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, let's kind of close this off. We have some good news from coming from DC Comics itself. Now we had really strong sales in July, and so in June, seven out of the top ten titles were DC related. And this is what I kind of found really interesting is they actually edged out Marvel in dollar share, 35% to 34%, and unit share 41% to 36%. And this was kind of new to me when I read this article. I didn't realize this, Scott, because I, I haven't collected Marvel in a long time, but Marvel actually is putting out 97 comics a month. I was really surprised by that. DC puts out 63 comics a month. Now, that's 97 titles or 97 releases in a month? Well, I, I assumed it's releases, right? Well, I'm kind of curious because, you know, they say that DC puts out 63 comics in June, knowing that several of DC titles are released uh, twice a month. You know, like Detective, Batman, all the big names. You say 63 comics, but that doesn't mean they have 63 titles coming out. No, no, no. I, yeah, the number of titles is less for both of these. Right. Yeah, but the fact that they're putting out 97 comics, I did not know that. So that actually kind of explains to me why they tend to win the unit share because they're really just putting out a ton of product. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they also put out a ton of variants too. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that the uh, DC wins the dollar share and the unit share because one is how much money they brought in and the unit share is how many issues they actually sold. Mm -hmm. So DC is selling more issues but even though DC is selling books at a lower price point because they've committed to that $2.99 yep. price point they're still making more money and they're charging less for their books. Yeah. I think that's I think that's incredible. Well I think DC made a really smart decision here as opposed to like say what they did with you know the New 52 which I you know I very much enjoyed New 52. It kind of got me 
back into reading DC Comics, you know, at least more up to date at the time. And what was possibly one of the flaws about DC New 52 is they, a large percentage of their monthly books were kind of more of the experimental type books. And so what they've actually done this time around with DC Rebirth is they've kind of really focused in on the ones that definitely sell. And so like that, that's why you get Batman, you know, two times a month for the main title, Detective Comics two times a month and so forth. And that's really kind of smart because I think that's a, a kind of a winning strategy to try to get the revenue numbers back up for just the DC Comics. Well, um, when I finally get around to, as I say it every week, when I get around to reading all the Rebirth I'm buying, I will let you know. But yeah. I'm, but I have to admit, as someone who did read every New 52 title, mm-hmm. there was some crap in there. And yeah. I'm just glad that they're getting rid of the crap and yeah. just focusing on the good stuff. Yep. It's really a smart move, especially with all the media you have on the big and the small screen as well. So it's, uh, you know, definitely going to be a lot more tied to that. So it's, it's a smart strategy overall for DC Entertainment. Yeah. Well, guys, that's it for this week's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. And personally, I hope you enjoyed having me back because, man, I've gotten a lot of crap on Twitter for the past week. And I'm glad to be back to go, screw you. Yeah. I'm still here. <laughs> I'm still part of the show. This is the way it's supposed to be. Now we can debunk the rumor that I did, in fact, fire you, which I did not. So, in fact, instead of firing you, I've actually doubled your pay. So, oh, once again, two times zero is still zero. I'm sorry. Do the math. Um, but it's actually, we've gone over this before. It's not two times zero. It's two times negative something. Exactly. Whatever whatever this show costs us. Yeah, because we, we lose money on this show. So we make no money whatsoever. But we have so much fun. But we have fun. So, guys, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know if there's anything you'd like to talk about or touch on. And Scott, where can they find us? Well, as always, the quickest way and the way you'll actually get a response from us in a timely manner <laughs> will be on Twitter at Suicide Squadcast. Or you can also contact us individually. I can be found on Twitter at ScottDC27. Yeah, and you can get me on Twitter at Alan Fire. And you can also reach the show at SuicideSquadcast at gmail.com. You can reach us there. You just won't maybe not hear from us in a while. Yeah, it, it might be like a month before we get back to you, quite honestly. Uh, guys, our show has grown a, a ton thanks to you guys. And we get a lot of communication. So we try our best to respond to you guys. So just don't take it personally if you don't hear from us for a little bit. You know, I think the point is, is that they write us such great emails that we don't want to just shoot off like a little one sentence email. We actually want to respond to what everyone says. So the emails just take so much longer to write. That is true. That is true. So guys, one other thing, we actually have a Facebook page as well. We typically don't advertise this. In fact, I would even say, Scott, I would recommend the listeners do not go to our Facebook page. No, I say I don't. I No, I heard you say that <laughs> in the last episode and stop it because I'm the one who posts the links to the show there. So don't make me feel like I'm wasting my time. That is true. I would true. actually like more people there. If more people went there, I might do more with the Facebook page, <laughs> to be honest with you. I say that sarcastically. Uh, the thing is, we we pretty much post our show when we publish it and that's about it. We don't, we're not real active there. So, but yeah, so if you guys uh, want, go ahead over there and give us a like and, you know, maybe if you put enough pressure on us, we'll have to start doing more on Facebook. But Scott, we had nine iTunes written reviews this week. Dang. Yeah, Dang. Let's, let's get through these because we have a contest winner. I know. Okay, you, you start off. Yeah, I better take this one because this is from iTunes Australia. Oh, no, and we know that just gets me in trouble. That just gets you in trouble. So this is from Jack Haley, and it's titled, What a Great Informative Show. Jack says, this is such a fantastic show. Tim, Scott, and Brent really know their stuff and always thoroughly do their research before spreading rumors about the DCEU. I've been listening for about six months now, and I really enjoy listening to every episode. We share a lot of the same opinions, which makes it feel like discussing the DC Universe with friends rather than listening to strangers talking. Keep up the good work, fellas. Thank well, you. thank you, Jack. Uh, our next one comes from Kibron113, called Good Source for Straight Up DC News. Kibron writes, what I like most about this podcast is they go out and filter through all the 
the clickbait and get to the truth of the news. No anti-WBDC slants or overblown fanboy favoritism to it. Just straight up information that lets me figure out my take on it. Nice. Yay. Thank you. Yep. Next one is from Michael Cassio. Uh, that's what I'm going to say. Yeah. Titled Fantastic Listening. Really enjoy the way these guys break down the news and I really like the insight they have in their reviews. In a day where we are overrun with clickbait reviews, these guys give us a fair review without sounding like apologists. Highly recommended. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next is Adam Benson from iTunes Canada and I will resist some sort of Canada joke <laughs> at this point. Adam, why? Eh? You No. <laughs> no, you went there. Come on. Let's just, let's get to the review. Just read the review, eh? Adam writes, fantastic <laughs> podcast. One of the best podcasts for DC news and information has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts until Tim just insulted your entire country. <laughs> uh, this is Adam from the Fast Forward Rewind podcast, which uh, they've been really awesome on Twitter. So thank you, Adam. So Adam and his crew have got a little podcast called Forward Slash Rewind. So give him a listen. So our next one comes from Shinkyo and it's titled Great Podcast About All DC. Shinkyo says, I found this podcast while looking for other opinions about the Suicide Squad movie. Great hosts, interesting topics. A really good podcast overall. Thank you. Yay. And then to round out giveaway number 18, we have Lobster Johnson, who writes the best DC podcast. These guys have great information and run a very professional podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No uncomfortable laughing at their own jokes. Uh Uh-oh, I just screwed that over. (laughs) And just great insight and discussion. They know their stuff, and this has rapidly become my number one superhero news podcast. They are very balanced in their approach. This is not some pro-DC Marvel bashing show. I feel that they want everyone to do well, but the focus of the show is on DC properties on the silver and small screen. Give this one a try. Absolutely, we want everyone to do well. Yeah, Lobster Johnson, you, you got us perfectly. We are a DC show. We love the DC properties. We focus on the DC properties, but you know we love we love anything comic book really related. So, uh, so you definitely have us figured out. And one other thing I would say, we do laugh at our own jokes sometimes, but we're very comfortable doing it. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so giveaway number 18, guys. Let's run through this real quick. The 10 contestants are in order received The Great Film Lover, Skiwi 8 Once Fan 21, Havoc 2, Jack Haley, Cabron 113, Michael Cassio, Adam Benson, Shinkyo, and finally Lobster Johnson. And using random.org from 1 to 10, number is 5, which is Jack Haley. That was one oh, we well, just read. Oh, wow. The shipping costs are going to kill you going to Australia. Oh, no. This is going to kill me. This is going <laughs> to kill me. <laughs> well, Jack, fair is fair. Uh, you won. So best you could do is if you can go and look up in U.S. dollars, figure out what is a DC trade paperback that you would like to have, $15 or less, and send me a link to it, and I will get that sent off to you. Well, you'll have to give me your address as well. So, but congratulations. I will get that sent off to you. Now, Scott, we're moving on to giveaway number 19. Let's get to it. First one okay. is from iTunes UK. It's from Vintage GT, titled Count Me In. Among the droves of very average comic book and superhero podcasts, there are only a few that shine through, and this is one of them. Level-headed, unbiased, and, un- and knowledgeable discussion and reviews on the stuff we all know and love. I'm new to this cast, but I'm in for the long haul with this one. Try it. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, oh, no. Oh, yay. I still get to read an Australia one. Yay. <laughs> I screwed up. I screwed up. You so screwed up. Uh, JD89 from iTunes Australia writes, solid effort. Found these guys by accident looking for people talking about Suicide Squad for my commute. Very unbiased for a podcast named after the movie 
movie. Some great viewpoints and worth a listen for sure. Well, thank you, JD89. Thank you. And you resisted doing the Australian accent. I did because I'm terrible at it and I acknowledge that. <laughs> and then finally, our last one for today. And this is from Keds and Tube Socks titled The Only DC Podcast I Listen To. This is the only DC podcast I listen to regularly. Love these guys and their passion for DC. If you want a positive DC news show, this is the one for you. And I totally know who this is. This is Noel McLaughlin from the Agent Adapt podcast. Oh, so very great. Cool. Po- very great. And I was on her show to talk Suicide Squad. Yes, you so if you want to check out that review, you can hear me. Yay. Very cool. Now, guys, we are only seven away from the next and final, I think, iTunes. Possibly. Possibly maybe. iTunes giveaway. We said we're going to do this up until our one-year anniversary, which is, and mark your calendars, our one-year anniversary is September 9th. So. Ooh, something special's got to happen on that day. Oh, yeah? I don't know. I mean, I feel like our I feel like our one-year anniversary show needs to be something special. Yeah, we'll Aren't you going to have, gonna have like, wine and dine me, Tim? I mean, honestly, it's our anniversary. Yeah, maybe we do. You know, maybe if we have some listeners send us some, like, recordings of them saying, hey, congratulations, we'll play them. How about that? That'd be kind of okay. cool. So, open invitation, guys. All right, so that's it, guys. Uh, if you feel like we deserve it, leave us a positive review on iTunes, and you will be entered into this contest, but you, you're running out of time. You better hurry up. We are seven away from our possible final giveaway, and if we actually give this one away and we get started before our anniversary on another contest, we'll go ahead and start one more, even if it runs over. So, so that's it, guys. Had a great week. This is a lot of fun. I was happy to have you back, Scott. Oh, it's great to be back. I, I, it just it just felt wrong. Once again, I'm glad the timeline has been restored. <laughs> yes. Now, we just need to find out if Brent still exists. <laughs> Probably not. No, no, I'm not exactly. He's like Thomas Wayne. He just has got to go. No. <laughs> he's just got to go. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll go searching for him to see if we can find him back. So. Well, that's it, guys. I hope you guys have a great week and keep reading, DC. Bye, guys. Welcome to BBC One Radio Playground Insults. Today in our studio, we have the host of the Suicide Squadcast, Tim and Scott. Okay, boys, you know how it is. The first one to laugh is the loser, and it is no holds bar, so enjoy. So, Scott, I was kind of looking at your picture here, and I just want to say, I think the 80s wants their hair back, but they can't seem to find it on your head. Okay, Tim, I, I see I see where we're going here. Okay. Um, you know, you know um, your, your, your cat is more interesting sounding on the microphone than you are. You know, I'm just, just, just saying. Mm-hmm. Hey, don't you talk about my cat like that.